0: It's not that I'm an intensely private man. I'm really not. It is that I choose instead of, uh, thank you, my life being anecdotal, I choose rather to emphasize the revelation. Of scripture and to reveal the nature of god but my life has not been uneventful and sometimes i will say in one sentence things that have represented a distillation of many forms of suffering and trial um the reason that our gospel is authentic is that it's not theoretical it's real it's real the things I tell you the revelations that that come have been undergird over a lifetime not just of revelation but of personal suffering the the most impossible levels of suffering that I faced in my early life was the loss of my young son. And in fact, I had, uh, I had shingles from the extreme emotions of having lost So uh, when I tell you about suffering and when I walk through it, with precise references, when I tell you about the soul, when I tell you about the points where you have to choose and what is the nature of the choice and how you feel when you're making these choices, it all sounds like somebody um, who... It sounds like he knows what he's talking about, but we don't know anything about him. Uh, the truth is the truth apart from our personal stories so we can comfort one another. I do not make it my habit to comfort others from my own brokenness. I comfort others from the truth that I've come to know is true. So when I say to you, I'm absolutely certain of a matter. I'm not wishing about it. I know the certainty of it very precisely. When I see others facing, you know, the things worse than death that you can face in life. Death is not the hardest thing that you can face. Personally, I've faced death many times um, in a number of different places, in a number of different settings. But I know that in the moments the presence of God is more than enough to sustain you. Because I've been there, I've seen these things. So from the sufferings early on of the loss of my son on to the present circumstances, I know the truth of what I'm saying. I could not, with the degree of confidence with which I declare things, I could not say these things but for the fact that I am absolutely sure that they are the truth because I've not only had the revelation of what is true, I've had the experience that tested it in my life. The whole point of our becoming mature is that the Word itself becomes incarnate in our flesh and we become the truth that we say. See, the truth is a person. Everything that is true is an accurate reflection of a facet of a person. But the truth in its entirety is a person. He even said it himself. He said, I am the truth. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. But what is true of him, and because we are in him, is also true of you. And part of the reason you're required to suffer, as sometimes you do, in fact always the reason you're required to suffer in the way that you do, is to transform you into the very face of the truth. So that when you say the thing, There's no possibility that you'll be wrong or proven wrong. It's not about being right or wrong. It's about the reality that underlies what you say. See, the living God has always been interested in being seen, becoming incarnate, being observable in human form. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That's exactly the destiny of everyone who is in Christ. You are the current expression of who Christ is in time and space. That's what we mean when we say you are the body of Christ. That's where I want to start this evening. Christ. Christ is a mystery. Paul said it when he said I wanted to be, to reveal the mystery who is Christ. Now, a mystery From God's viewpoint, is simply heaven unrevealed. But as we have said, in setting up the paradigm of heaven and earth being one intending to be brought into the other, was also meant to be, that was also a statement also meant to be unpacked. Not only that, we'll see the connection between heaven and earth, but that we might understand that this was intentionally created that way. Remember what I said, in the beginning when God chose to unveil himself, let there be light, he chose as the venues for the unveiling of himself, he chose to create heaven and earth. And the intent in the prayer of Jesus was that all that is in heaven should in its season come into the earth but be manifested in the body of Christ. So Christ is a mystery. To understand the mystery who is Christ, we must understand the motivation in the heart of God for creating the heavens and the earth. Now, there are two things the Bible says about God. One is that God is love and the other, that God is a spirit. Collapsed into one statement, God is a spirit who loves. God is a spirit who loves. Whenever God chooses to express a matter it can only be the perfect expression of the matter. Whenever God chooses to express a thing, God is only capable of a perfect expression of the thing. He does not have a secondary expression of it, because perfection obviates the need for, or negates the need for, secondary expression. Now, How did God, in creating the heavens and the earth, how did He intend to show Himself as God who loves? Yesterday, at the beginning of this, uh, we said that uh, the intention of God in creating the heavens and in creating the earth was to cause the invisible God to become visible because as long as He is God, which is forever and ever, He is a spirit and one simply cannot see a spirit. But yet God is a being, God is a real being, God is a real person. So... We have to get used to, humans have to get used to a very difficult thing which is to understand personhood without reference to a defined form. We're used to thinking of personhood exclusively exclusively with reference to a form. The challenge for us is to understand personhood Apart from a reference to a defined form. So when you think of uh, when you think of Lucy, for example, when the name comes up, you have a picture in your head of a woman who looks a certain way, certain height, um, walks a certain way, etc. And we're that way with everybody. You know, we have a defined form when we refer to personhood. But we also talk about the spirit of a person. spirit of a person. When we get beyond the the more mundane questions of shape and form and height and weight and uh, hair color and color of eyes and all those forms, uh, color of skin and the like, when we get beyond that, we are put to a challenge to define a being without reference to those attributes. So if you think of Sheba, Fargis, apart from the Indian princess, <laughs> if, apart from that, how do you think of Sheba? Well, I think anyone who has experienced Sheba will concur that um, lioness might be an appropriate <laughs> might be an appropriate reference to her spirit. Yeah. <laughs> Can I get a witness on that?
1: <laughs>
0: now here's a person who is not you know, who doesn't growl in the fashion of a lioness but yet will refer to her spirit as like that of a lioness bold and and uh, unrelenting and um, you know pursuing you in the ways of uh, to secure the ways of god in you and all those things one who gets in your face and doesn't back down and other kind of prophetic gestures like that we have a way of defining spirit by reference to characteristics that are non-physical. When we wish to speak about God, we, we must define God by the by his most uh, salient of characteristics, which is that God is love. But we quickly see the definition of God as love is more than how we typically refer to love in our vernacular. In our vernacular, love is commonly referred to um, as a synonym for romance. So when we say we love someone, uh, there's a, a romantic element to that. Or there is a fraternal or patriarchal reference to that. And it carries notes of softness and kindness and predispositions of charity and uh, vulnerability without fear of exploitation, those characteristics. When you talk about God as love, however, you're talking about the complete definition of love the complete definition of love, which includes confrontation. Today I said something that uh, was probably arresting when I said God is not tolerant because according to Dr. Phil and Oprah, love is only to be defined as tolerance, but they don't know what they're talking about. They're simply regurgitating popular notions. It's not something they've actually examined as to what it is because when pressed, they themselves would be hard-pressed to defend the notion of love as tolerance because it would require Oprah to divest herself of her vast fortune if she actually believed that love is tolerance. It's nice when you can write a magazine article about it. But put to the real test, um, if she actually believed that love is tolerance, then she would put her money where her mouth is, so to speak. And I'm not down on Oprah or anything. I'm just showing you that people say things they don't actually believe. Because it's easy to say those things. They're shortcuts. And frankly, the, the problem is not with Oprah. The problem is with a consumeristic society that is not willing to probe into anything significant and they simply want buzzwords because they want to go on to the next thing. Isn't it amazing how when people are in trials, deep trials, that are designed to shape them differently, that all they want to do is move on to the next thing? (laughs)
1: <laughs>
0: and, <laughs> and so, so we have people uh, who are no more than children who have grown old mm-hmm. that's a line from a song make me an angel that flies from Montgomery she refers to uh, my old man is another child that's grown old it's a Bonnie Raitt uh, song. Southern song. John Prime uh, is the is the writer and Bonnie Raitt is the singer. See, I'm used to listening to things other than church songs. <laughs> God is love. When God chose See, there's certain eternal attributes. There's certain eternal attributes that cannot be said to exist apart from demonstration. Certain eternal attributes that cannot be said to exist apart from demonstration. The three main ones are faith hope and love, eternal attributes that will survive uh, the ending of this present epoch and will continue beyond. And because they are so, by their very nature, they cannot be said to exist apart from demonstration. So with faith, how do you know that one has faith? Show me your faith by your works. Why? Because the very nature of faith requires that you act. The very nature of faith. It will never be possible to have faith without being required to demonstrate it because it's the nature of being. It's like when you turn a light on in the darkness the darkness disappears because that's the nature of the interaction. When it's dark and you turn the light on, the darkness must disappear. You cannot turn a light on in this room, for example, and half the room remain in darkness while the other half is in the light. It cannot be that way. These things have to do with the nature of being. They're not subject to voting, they're not subject to our common agreements, these are called transcendent things. They speak of a reality that, the hu- that humans do not control, nor, that they d- nor are they capable of defining. If you want to know whether or not there's God, observe how light dismisses dark. That's not empirical because light has no apparent weight to it. It forces the darkness to retreat. It is simply the nature of one thing over another, how there are greater and lesser things within the universe of being. It's simply that. You know? It's simply that. So love the greatest of all these eternal attributes and the thing that defines God Himself cannot be said to exist apart from demonstration. Now, the demonstration required to show love and God's demonstration being altogether perfect required God to establish the heavens and the earth and ultimately in the earth and as His last act being His primary act, He made man. He made man in the image and likeness of God. Now, when the Scriptures say that God said, let us make man in our own image after our own likeness. And so God made man in the image and likeness of God. What is true is that before God declares anything, He sees the end of what He's declaring from the beginning. So when He initiates something... It is against the finished concept of that that is already in him that he initiates it. So, when God created a seed, what does God see at the end of the process that begins with creating a seed? What does God see? He sees the forests. You can't not see the forest if you are Alpha and Omega. If you are the beginning and the end of every matter, you cannot not see, double negative, you cannot not see the finished thing. The Lamb of God was slain from before the foundations of the world and you were seen in Christ before... The foundations of the. We read it a couple of different times from Ephesians, Ephesians 1. So when God said, Let us make man in our image and in our likeness, and he began the process with Adam, what did he see? He saw the corporate Christ. And it is unmistakable that the corporate Christ is in the image and likeness of God. Unmistakable. Unmistakable. And so to to realize this result, God planted a seed in the earth, or shall I say, God lifted up, God resurrected a seed from the earth by giving spirit into formed earth. Until that, the first man was created as an act of resurrection. The first reference to resurrection in the scriptures is how God raised a man from the dust of the earth by giving him a spirit out of the person of God. And the full reference of that is Christ. That's why he said, I am the fullness of the resurrection. I am the resurrection and the life. Our eyes are being opened to the treasures of heaven And we don't have to go to Nigeria, to Lagos, to find the pearly gates in somebody's backyard. (laughs) When I was a boy, they would say, a thief from a thief makes God laugh. (laughs) Which is to say, if someone steals something from someone who has stolen it, God just laughs. laughs. if it ends up in Nairobi if it ends up in Nairobi God will just laugh (laughs) did you have that saying in Africa I'm never sure what sayings we have in the the islands came from Africa, sometimes it comes from India (laughs) sounds Indian (laughs) My great friend Segi, Dr. Segi says, you know, I've had a lot of fun. Uh, He says, um, do you know how you can tell an Indian who is from India versus an Indian who is from South Africa? So you let him tell you. He says, well, an Indian from South Africa will say it is very, very good. He said, an Indian from India will say, is very, very good
1: you. <laughs>
0: so we're being exposed to the treasures of heaven. The word is becoming available. The Word is becoming flesh. So when the first man was created as an act of resurrection, God was saying that out of death He will bring the resurrected one who has overcome death itself and therefore is incapable of being kept from being a life-giving spirit. When God made Adam, he had in mind Christ. There are two uh, similar references. The word Adam or Adam in Hebrew refers to a particular man, a certain man, that man being called Adam. But Adam also refers to the entire race. Mankind, humankind, is called Adam. And interestingly, the earth is called Adama. Adama. So there's Adam the man, Adam the race, and the Tewa is Adama. Now, that's the likeness of the man from earth. But as you have borne the likeness of the man from earth, so also you shall bear the likeness of the man from heaven. Listen, I will show you a mystery, but you shall not all sleep, but you shall all be raised, so that death is swallowed up in victory. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 34 and following. So our destiny is to bear the likeness of the man from heaven and the first iteration of it, first tangible iteration of it, is that we have borne the likeness of the man from earth. But that man from earth was a man brought to life from death by an endowment of spirit that came out of the person of god so the secret to the whole is in the seed the reason that god established the creation and at the end of it established man was to bring to the fullness a vision in god in which the 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 Son of God would arise as a resurrected one. So when God planted the seed, He did so with the declaration, let us make man in our image and in our likeness and He was looking all the way to the end of the process which is why He inaugurated the process in the fashion in which He did. He created a man by resurrection intending in the initiation of the process to prefigure how the process would conclude. You see? You got it. Good. (laughs) I'll say it again just to let it soak in. There's an initiation and there's a final outcome. The initiation of the process, beginning the process with Adam, By raising Him out of the dust of the earth, He was telling us ahead of time that when Christ was raised out of the dust of the earth, that would be the fullness of the man in the image and likeness of God. He looked all the way from the beginning to the end because it's His point of view. He knows the end from the beginning. And, and as we said, reading Ephesians 1, you were, you were destined, you were predestined to be conformed to the image of sonship from the foundations of the world. Let's just re- reread it and put it... Some scriptures you can't read too often. This Go back with me very quickly to Ephesians 1. It's the very end of it. Well, actually, right at the beginning he says, He chose us in Him, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, in Christ, in Christ. just as He chose us in Christ, if I could say it that way, just as He chose us in Him or in Christ before the foundations of the world that we should be holy and blameless uh, before Him in love. Having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ... "...to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, by which He made us accepted in the Beloved." In Him, I mean, you can't mistake this. Apart from me, Jesus would say, you can do nothing. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and I am the access to the Father. Hmm? In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of His grace, which He made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His good pleasure, which He purposed in Himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, in other words, when all of time has been completed, this is what God will have he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on the earth in him. Hmm? Working backward from that perspective, because this is the end that he knows from the beginning. Working backward from that perspective then, when God said, let us make man in our own image, in our own likeness, he already had firmly in mind this end, that you would be found in Christ. And he established that before the foundations of the world. And he established it by covenants. By covenants. He swore on oath to himself, According to Ephesians, excuse me, according to um, Hebrews, chapter six, since there was no greater for God to swear by, God swore on oath to Himself. God said, "I swear to God." <laughs> so help me. So help me. It's funny. (laughs) Why do you think God swore on oath to himself? No other by by him to swear. None none that was his equal. But there was an additional purpose for doing so. For your benefit. Here is why. Here is what he says. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 17. Verse sixteen says, uh, "For men, uh, let's go back to thirteen. But when this Hebrew six thirteen, but when God made a promise to Abraham, notice He didn't say God made a covenant with Abraham; said God made a promise with Abraham. There's a distinction between a covenant and a promise. A covenant is the agreement that produces an estate." Which you give to a beneficiary in the form of a promise, especially when the beneficiary is not yet a life in being. Okay, but simple, simple explanation: husband and wife marry, man and woman marry, you know, and um, no children uh, for a while. Uh, but while and as they have established a house, a family together. Um, you, they, they have, they're acquiring certain assets. Now, the, the covenant between uh, between both of them produces an estate. The estate is meant to belong to their children, who, until these children come to be lives in being let me use an actual example, Ombura and Mushara. (laughs) They're about to establish the covenant of marriage between them. When they do, they'll begin to establish an estate. Being a successful producer and an artist's wife, they have a vast fortune but they have no children yet, they've been busy building their careers. When their children come along, when their children come along, the children are their heirs. Children are their heirs. And they'll write up in an instrument called their last will and testament, they'll write up a document that defines what their children get from their estate, at their passing. Now, they may write that will before they even have children. Before their children are lives in being, they may write the will. But they they may already have an estate to be given. The covenant that produces that estate is a covenant of marriage and their children are not parties to that covenant. They are the parties to the covenant. But they have this estate in anticipation of having children they write a will. In what form is that estate conveyed to their children who are not yet lives and being? It's a promise. It's a written down, fully funded, fully vested promise. But until their lives in being, the promise does not vest. You see? So God promised before the foundations of the world. Before man was, God had already covenanted to benefit man. God had covenanted with Himself in anticipation of man being, lives and being, he prepared the way before he created us. God didn't create us so he could save us. God saved us because the purposes for which he created us were sufficiently great to warrant that extraordinary uh, um, um, provision on the part of God to save us. Saving us is not the purpose for which he created us. Saving us is the requirement to reconcile us to the purpose for which he has created us. In other words, the purpose for which he created us is so great that it's worth the cost to bring us back when, as he anticipated, knowing the end from the beginning, we would depart from it. So ours is not the gospel, as I mentioned yesterday, Uh, ours is not the gospel of conciliation. Ours is the gospel of reconciliation, putting back the prior existing state, not fixing up the result so that you could sort of mollify the outcome to the best possible uh, um, result, accepting the fact that the original intent is no longer attainable. The Ben and Jerry. Uh, uh, you know, I've talked to you, uh, I, I've illustrated the points with pizza and ice cream. <laughs> so, okay, now, knowing the end from the beginning, God saw us in Christ, just as this passage says, from the foundations of the world. And God swore on oath to Himself. And these covenants exist in heaven, pictured by circles, because they're eternal. And we know that not by sort of a, an emotional connection to the symbols, we know that because He takes one of the circles out of heaven and puts it in the earth, and sometimes you see it as a double rainbow. There's a rainbow that encircled the throne, and when God took the circle of the rainbow and put it in the earth, he said, this is a covenant. Now, with whom was God making that covenant? Well, the covenant already existed in heaven. He will have a people in His image and likeness. And if He destroyed them all, He would not. So He established in the earth the reminder to us that in heaven He has already seen the end from the beginning and His throne exists to empower the result that He has seen as the end from the beginning. So He will never destroy man entirely from the face of the earth because if He did, He would have nullified an eternal covenant. So we will never be obliterated from the face of the earth. I don't care what the gloom and doomers say, there will be enough people on the earth to form a house in the image and likeness of God because God has sworn it to himself and it exists around his throne in heaven as a constant reminder of his covenant with us. That's why God did not destroy the earth with a flood entirely. That's why God saved Noah and his house. We have the exact opposite view of God We think that God is just waiting for an excuse to destroy humanity when indeed God waited until there was a righteous family so He did not have to destroy humanity. Why? And then He put it as a covenant. He put it as a sign of the covenant, you see. There was a time when all humanity was subject to destruction, so the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared. That's what it says. That's what it says. There was not a man in the earth to justify the saving of the earth. So the long-suffering of God, the love of God, waited in the days of Noah until there was a new seed from whom he could resurrect and fulfill what He had promised to Himself by covenant before the foundations of the world. Oh my. Different view of God, isn't it? What God saw in the one who is in His image and likeness was the full expression of love. When God... When God created the heavens and the earth, he created it for the purpose of demonstrating, unveiling himself that we might know him as the God of love. And when he made man, he made him in in his image and likeness and he saw him in the end of, of of the cycle, not just at the beginning. And what he saw in the end was the corporate son. The son who is spirit, because, you see, the image and likeness of God, the nature of God is that He's Spirit. The likeness of God is that He's love. Image and likeness are not the same thing. Likeness is, Bo is talking about examples of the manner in which He's like me. We behave alike. An image is if you see us, you can conclude that we, are, we look like one another. Image is resemblance, appearance. So if God is spirit, the Son who is like God is spirit. And the Son who, who is in the image of God is spirit. Spirit begets spirit. That which is born of flesh is flesh, that which is born of spirit is spirit. So the Son of God could not be in the image of God unless He is also Spirit, because Spirit begets Spirit. spirit. Right? But He starts out clothing Spirit in flesh, but He knows where it's going. And this is what He's after. The way you get Spirit out of flesh is to kill the flesh and resurrect the Spirit. So we are a resurrected people. That's why you're baptized, to symbolize that the flesh has given way to the Spirit. That you live, but yet it's not you who lives, but Christ who lives in you. That's the new man. So if any man is in Christ, what is he? See, you knew knew all these things. You knew all these things. Because the old has passed. What's the old? Adam. In Adam, we're subject to death. In Christ, we're made alive to God. So if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed. The new has come. All this, all this, from God who has reconciled us to himself in Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Now what's our message? As, as the ones who carry the message of reconciliation, I'm speaking of course Second Corinthians 5, what is our message? That God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not counting men's sins against them. And He's given us this ministry of reconciliation. Which is to say, you have the authority, if you are in Christ, you have the authority to represent God in declaring that God has forgiven the sins of men. So instead of the sinner's prayer... When you meet someone who, like Jesus, Jesus met the met the man in the tree. Remember the, the little Irish guy, Zacchaeus was a wee little man. <laughs> Some of you didn't go to Sunday school, so you don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> when God, when Jesus met the tax collector, when a, when when a man of his stature in the society, a rich man, climbs into a tree among the urchins who are doing their best to shake him off into the crowd. If if he had climbed in a tree when I was a boy and I was in that tree with some of my friends, our whole task would be to rock the tree to throw him off. <laughs> but that's part of the experience. That's why I don't tell you about all these <laughs> To be to be humiliated in that fashion of just being among the urchins in the tree. When you come along and you see a man who has already repented because he has a mindset to know you, to put himself at such disadvantage to catch a glimpse of you, you don't have to ask him to repent. His action tells you he's already repented. So what do you do? If a man's already repented, tell him what you have been empowered to convey to him. Come down, your sins are forgiven. Let's go home and eat. Today salvation has come to your house. What does that mean? Your sins are forgiven. Come down, let's go eat. Now did that work? Sure. Sure. Any, guy, any person who comes out and says, four to one in your favor has repented. He said, if I've taken any monies that I've taken from anyone, I'll return four to one. That's the fruit of repentance. So, I'm telling you something. As the sons of God... You are empowered to convey the message, of the forgiveness of God to whoever is seeking God. Open your eyes and see the people who are straining forward, pressing forward to know God. And tell them what you've been empowered to tell them. Say simply, your sins are forgiven. Now let me tell you about the kingdom of God. You know what the Great Commission is in the book of John? John 20, 21? Not <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we say that the Great Commission is not found in John. It's nonsense. The most complete commissioning is found in John twenty twenty one. 21. We know the others... Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized shall be saved, and he who believes not shall be condemned. And these signs shall follow them that believe. That's Mark, uh, Mark 16, that's the commission in Mark. In, in Matthew 28, 18, he, says, uh, he gives a similar commission. In Luke 24, 47, gives the same commission in more or less the same terms that repentance and the forgiveness of sins should be preached in His name among all the nations beginning in Jerusalem. But in John 20, 21, He commissions us in these words. He says to His disciples, Now, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Now that's called deputizing. So don't shoot the deputy. (laughs) <laughs>
1: he really can't help himself. <laughs> <laughs> One love. Oh,
0: no. <laughs> 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 the next part of the commission is a substance of it. The first part was just to show you the deputizing. As the Father has sent me, now I am sending you. That's commissioning. That's the great commission. What does he tell them? That they are deputized to do. Whatever the Father sent him to do, he's deputizing them to do. And the main thing the Father sent him to do is to forgive sins. So the next line says, ever sins you forgive shall be forgiven.
1: That's what says, not
0: that's what she's asking. Oh, you be, that's the process by which you begin to make a disciple. You have to forgive his sins first because God is not counting men's sins against them and has made us the ambassadors of this message, 2 Corinthians 5. You can't begin to make a disciple until you forgive his sins. But if you were setting up the counterfeit, you'd give the ability to forgive sins. You'd confine it to, to a system that looked a whole lot like the state. You wouldn't... You wouldn't allow just anybody to forgive sin. That's right, that's right, that's right. That's exactly right, sure. As the Father has sent me, now I am sending you. Does that apply to you? If it doesn't, you're not part of the ambassadors of Christ. When, when Paul refers to the ambassadors of Christ, Second Corinthians chapter 5, he was not talking to the twelve. He was talking to you. He was talking to the Corinthians when he said, God is in Christ reconciling the world to Himself. How? In Christ. What are we inviting people to become? Born again, not of Adam, but of Christ. Right? We're inviting people to be reconciled to God in Christ as members of the body of Christ. What's our message? That God is not counting men's sins against them. So you need to look at this. I'm not making this stuff up, it's here. Look. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, look, read it with me, verse 11, let's start at verse 11, 2 Corinthians 5. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are well known to God, and I trust also we are well known in your consciences, for we do not commend ourselves again to you, but give you Opportunity to boast on our behalf that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearances and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves and so on. Then he tells the message for the love of Christ, verse 14, compels us because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all that those who live should live no longer for themselves but for him who died for them and rose again. Therefore, that being true, from now on we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once have known Christ according to the flesh, yet we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, now, are you in christ yeah. yes. yes how do you know that you have the spirit of god which is a seal you see the, the first baptism with which you are baptized is you are baptized by the spirit into the body of christ that's in the elementary doctrines yeah. okay the baptism of the not by not the baptism of the spirit but the baptism by the spirit it's the spirit who does the baptizing Now, there's a baptism of the Spirit in which you're filled with the Spirit. But there's something the Spirit does to you other than filling you, and that is to put you in your place in the body of Christ. Because He's the only one who knows your place in the body of Christ. You're assembled, you're assembled not by the will of man. Not by the selection of man, you're assembled by the foreknowledge of God as to who you are and why He why He put you in the earth. So when He saves you, the Spirit of God baptizes you. Which is, this is 1 Corinthians 12, right? Uh, body being many parts, though all the parts are many, one body and for by one Spirit were you baptized into one body. The Spirit baptized you into the body of Christ, which is to say the Spirit himself placed you in the body of Christ as you were foreordained to be placed. The only one who can be trusted with that is the one who who knows you from before you were in your mother's womb. Read again the elementary doctrines. It'll, It'll bring some of this current in your life in your knowledge. Even though we once knew Christ where we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, verse 17, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold all things. All things, not a few things, but all things have become new. Now, now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Christ Jesus and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. But to whom did God give the ministry of reconciliation? Whoever is in Christ. You can give what you have. If you have been placed in Christ, you can give the knowledge to another that you too are in Christ, that they too can be in Christ. God has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, you're all bright people. You know what this language is saying. He's saying, I want to explain to you what the ministry of reconciliation is. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting men's sins against them. And has committed to us, what? The word of reconciliation. What is the word of reconciliation that he's just described? God is not counting your sins against you. How do you say that to someone? Your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. You think you knew what your inheritance was? <laughs> you only think you knew what your inheritance. You know we're we're groveling before God to have enough money for things when we are the ambassadors of this grace. When you tell someone your sins are forgiven. Because you have discerned them in trees of inconvenience. They have pursued God. You don't just go around saying to everyone, your sins are forgiven. (laughs) 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 Yes, yes, we do. And I did the other day. I did the other day. There was a swindler who called my house, telling me that he was an agent of the IRS. And so I took him to task. And, um, and I ended up saying to him, because you have unconscionably exploited the old and the weak I speak a curse upon you that you in fact will not live very long and all that you have gained will be dissipated before you die. I retained his sins because in talking to him he was unconscionable. He ended up telling me, we've placed a bomb in New York uh, to destroy you. Apparently, he was someone from the middle. I mean, I knew from his accent that he was not from local. And, you know, I asked him a lot of questions. Uh, I asked him, uh, who were your parents? Where were you born? And he said, my parents were George Washington. And I said, well... Uh, that makes your mother uh, Martha Washington? And he said, yes. And I said, uh, that means that your mother was a slave. <laughs> and he said, no. <laughs> so we, we, you know, I mean, I was just, and he kept on. And, uh, and I said, you're a wicked man because you terrorize the helpless. I said, you will not live long. And before you do, everything you have gained by this unrighteous living, will be di- you'll see it dissipated. I said, know that this is the judgment of the one true and living God upon you. So yeah, I've retained people's
1: sins. And but I was freaked out. <laughs> <laughs> well, she has... ...so <laughs> <laughs>
0: no, we're going to put. I was wanting to be sure that his his condition were sufficient depravity that, as to whether or not I could discern if there was any chance of his redemption. When I discerned that there was not, I declared the end of his life. Yeah. So who's ever now? Now then, we are ambassadors of Christ. Listen, when Jesus cursed the fig tree, what happened? It withered and died. God helped the people who will exploit the sons of God. You see, the fear of the Lord is going to return to the earth. Fear of the Lord will come again upon the earth.
1: Is it possible to do this to a real IRS person? Well, <laughs>
0: <laughs> well there would such a matter would have to be undertaken in the council of of a spiritual father. Um, so the you know and, and there are god God provides sometimes uh, forms of appeal to the behavior of the unrighteous. So we should go through we're subject to all those kinds of considerations. But this was a lawless man without any restraint. And um, I know his brother. <laughs> and well he, he was not actually an IRS uh, agent. He was a thief. He was a thief and a scammer. But th- God will bring about... What do you think Peter did with Ananias and Sapphira? What do we think? These are just things in a book. Things in the book speak of a reality. And when you're accurately aligned, you can see from heaven and your judgments are just and righteous altogether. I judged Him because of the wickedness He has practiced on the weak. He was no danger to me, He was no threat to me. But I understood I had the authority to shorten His days on behalf of those who would be His victims. And I believe God had Him call me because to bring an arrest to Him. So neither the forgiveness of sins nor the retention of sins is something that can be done without the proper advice. Because no ambassador is free to act on his own initiative. An ambassador sees things from the viewpoint of the one he represents as the sovereign. You see? So when you see someone who is hungry and thirsty, you're free to give him bread and water. From heaven. Why else would you be said to be an ambassador? What else does an ambassador do? The word Paul uses here in 2 Corinthians is the word ambassador. We are therefore ambassadors for Christ. The language is specific. We are ambassadors for Christ. In short, we are how He comes. For means by which means He comes. As though God were pleading through us. As though God were making His appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who had no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. Look, uh, while we are looking at these two scriptures, I felt arrested to do a little bit more spade work Because of the the shocked look on some of your faces when I I told you what the commission was. Let's look at John 20, 21, please, which I referred to. Now, uh, verse 19 says, then, the same day that was the day of his resurrection, by the way, just for context, Verse 19, John 20, Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst of them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So they identified him by the, the nails, in his, the marks in his hands. and That's important for us because someone might say it's an apparition that deceived them. But I know of no demon that wants to have a nail, nails driven through their hands and feet. Right? They recognized him by the nails. So Jesus said to them, peace be to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. Does He have the authority to do that? How do you know that? Yes, Matthew 28, 18. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This is after the resurrection... So he could claim it having fulfilled all the requirements to possess the authority. So yes, as the Father sent me, I now have the authority to send you and I am sending you. You are therefore, as Paul would say, ambassadors for Christ as though God were making his appeal through you. What appeal is God making? Be reconciled to God. That's the appeal He's making to man. And in what context is He asking us to make that appeal? The context in which He's now not counting men's sins against them. Because today is the day of salvation. Not counting men's sins against them. When He said this, when He had said this, he breathed on them and said to them receive the holy spirit now have you received the holy spirit yes you have therefore you are accurately grafted in to this commission receive the spirit if you verse 23 if you forgive The sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. That's a matter of administration. You're asking a question of administration, not the question of whether or not you have the authority to do it. In the same way that we cannot... You're an ambassador. An ambassador does not have the privilege of acting in his own right. God is... You are ambassadors for Christ. So the Holy Spirit leads you when you forgive men's sins or when you retain men's sins. What's interesting is a righteous indignation came upon me when I heard this thief who was brash and bold and arrogant and unrepenting. I called him three different times, I called him back. And at no time did he show the faintest sign of remorse. After three times I had said to him, you are a fraud who are terrorizing old people. Third time, he tried to disguise his voice. He was an unrepentant thief, the kind who would say, come down off the cross and save us if you are the Son of God. That thief went to hell that day. See, putting an end, I don't mean that you personally put an end to anybody's life, but declaring the word of the Lord that will bring an end to their lives. If they're not repentant, they're beyond the hope of God. Now, you can't just decide. I called him three different times. Each time I challenged him, and each time he absolutely refused to back down and became belligerent. And when he told me, being completely caught, that they were going to put a bomb in New York City, you know, to, to kill a lot of people, then I knew that in addition to theft, he had murder in his heart because he was caught. Then is when I knew that I could retain his sins and speak against his life and God would honor. So you don't do anything lightly. You don't just go around and say to everybody, your sins are forgiven. <laughs> your sins are forgiven you. <laughs> Feel your pain, your sins are forgiven. <laughs> no. Learning what you have the capacity to do is one thing. Learning the accuracy of administration is another. We first have to tell people what they have the capacity to do in order for our training of them to make sense. You see? So when you see tax collectors in trees, In your neighborhood, tell them their sins are forgiven. (laughs) And when you see women at wells who in spite of their checkered past, they want to engage you in conversations about the water of life, offer them the water of life. Those are some of our examples. Now, Jesus was 33 when he was doing this. Jesus was 33 when He was doing this. When He told John to do this, John was probably 30. So you don't have to be old people to walk in some of this. And in fact, what you will find is more and more in this desperate place called Los Angeles where people are laden with iniquity, this is not the only place where they are, but they gather here, in like the wildebeest <laughs> in their migrant micro- micro- <laughs> You understand? <laughs> this this seems to be there seems to be an abundant crop of them here. <laughs> more so than, say, Lubbock, Texas. <laughs> um, you will find the need to forgive men their sins and you will see that it works on every occasion. I no longer lead people in a sinner's prayer. I find the four spiritual laws to be useless <laughs> Pretended logical concoctions that are meant to to supplant the real thing. Because you can always keep people at arm's length and not take responsibility for your ambassadorship. Every time, in every place, on every continent where I have seen people who desired the grace of God, I have said to them, Your sins are forgiven. And their response was instant and immediate. My mother-in-law was nearing the end of her life and had not accepted Christ, um, but now was finally open. And when I spoke with her that evening in her house and I said to her, your sins are forgiven, I asked her to tell me what things she wanted what she could have done, what she wanted to be relieved of and how she might have done things differently. And as she enumerated each of these things, I said to her, calm tones of a son-in-law with his mother-in-law, I said, Sally, that sin is forgiven. And she looked up without a hint of argument or resistance in her voice and she said, thank you. Lucy will tell you, everything changed after that. And she was ready to go. She came in at the last hour, but she will get a full reward. Yeah. Whose sins you forgive will be forgiven. I'll tell you, these are the things that have an eternal weight of glory. Glory the weight of these things. You're not mature until you can bear weight. These are weighty things. They're beyond life and death. They reach into the very reach behind the curtain into the very throne of God and bring representation of those things in heaven into the earth, in your persons. Many of you have been quite eager to and, and have been willing to present the things that are being shown to you to others at no small risk to yourselves and to your reputations. Now with this and because you've taken this stance, Lord today would have you know that your carriers... Of the authority to forgive or to retain the trespasses of others. Oh, I wish I had time to tell you about the four living creatures. Uh, no. yes. please. Please. <laughs> please. Please.
1: The, the book is coming out. We're done. Oh, we have an hour? Yes. Okay. All right. Well,
0: take a take a brief break. Uh, take a brief break. Take five.
1: Yeah, take five, and we'll continue. you.